Take out your Bibles and turn back to Philippians chapter 2. We will again be looking at verses 14 through 18. You can find them on page 982 in the Pew Bible. How'd you do? Did you complain this week? Liars. You're all liars. You're all liars. You know that you did. Uh, Romans 7:18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's like a scripture summary of my recent efforts on the complaining front. Have you experienced that this week? The, the tension of having Philippians 2.14 in your head, do all things without grumbling or disputing, and then grumbling and disputing. Uh, or at least struggling not to do it, or not doing it externally, but still constantly feeling it and doing it internally. Man, it's hard. We're sinners. Man, our God is good and faithful and kind. I think we broke a new record last week. We talked for an hour last week about not complaining. I'll try not to make that the new standard. But we talked about complaining. Then we complained all week. And yet... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because of Christ. You have complained this week. Have you confessed the sin of complaint? Have you rejoiced in your complaintless Savior and in the free forgiveness that you have in Him? So we're going to keep talking about this because you keep struggling with this. We didn't even get past verse 14 last week. So now we're going to try to keep working through these next couple of verses. We saw last week that the command is very simple. Do everything you do without grumbling and disputing. Why? Well, we pulled back and look at the big picture. Why? Because God is sovereign. You are to do all things without complaining because God is sovereign over all things. And if that is true, and I think we established pretty clearly from Scripture last week that it is, then when you complain about anything, you are ultimately complaining about the God who has decreed and ordained that thing. So don't complain because God is sovereign over all things and good in all things. He is always doing you good in Christ, even in the bad and sad things. So don't complain. God is up to something, and it's good, and it's so much better than you can begin to imagine. You're focused on this truly hard thing that may last for a moment, a few days, weeks, years, listen, maybe even entire life. But God is focused on eternity. So don't complain. That was the big picture why. But now let's jump back down into the weeds of the text. Why else shouldn't you complain? Well, Paul gives some very specific reasons. Sovereignty should be compelling enough, but Paul gives you more reasons. So let's pick back up the flow of his argument. The main command of this section is back in verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The subcommand is don't complain. It's related 
to that. Work out your own salvation and do that without complaining. Why? So that you may be a holy witness of the word. We just spent last week looking at words of complaint. We are expert at those. Let's see why else they're so bad. And let's see the word of life as the only solution to our words of complaint. We're probably only going to make it through verse 16 this morning. Don't worry, we'll come back to it next week. So we're going to look at three points as we unpack these couple of verses. We're going to see why no complaining. Well, we're going to see that it's because complaint frustrates sanctification. And then we'll see that complaint also frustrates evangelization. And then finally, we'll see the solution, that it's the word that instead furthers both sanctification and evangelization. So let's read the text first. I'll read all the 14 through 18 again, just so we have the whole things in our mind. But we'll be focusing on verses 15 and 16 this morning. Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Bow with me and let's go to the Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, help us to now approach these words and receive these words as if they were your very words, as if they were truly the word of life. And so we ask for your word to bring life this morning. We ask for it to bring life by pointing us to Jesus Christ. Help me, Lord. I am weak. You are strong. I am insufficient. You are more than sufficient. So work by your spirit through your word in this time. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 15. We've got don't complain down. Why don't complain? First word of verse 15. That. So here's why. Paul is about to tell us why. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. Remember last week, we, we spent a good portion of our time trying to define complaining from the Old Testament and the experience of Israel, the, the consummate complainers. We saw their continual complaining against the Lord in Exodus and Numbers. Ah, Pharaoh, you've brought us out, God, uh, to kill us. Ah, no water, you've brought us out to kill us. Ah, no food, you've brought us out to kill us. God does miraculous things. And continually and amazingly delivers and provides for his people. And yet his people complain. So Paul clearly has Israel in the back of his mind as he writes these verses. And verse 15 confirms this for us. In verse 15, Paul is actually quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 verse 5. In the Song of Moses, we're at the very end of Deuteronomy. Moses is going to die in only two chapters. So this is the end. These are Moses' last 
words, and he composes a song, uh, a poem to serve as a testimony, a reminder and warning to Israel after he is gone. And listen to how he describes the people in the beginning of this song in 32.5. They, Israel, have dealt corruptly with him, with God. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. You see all the same words there. Children, blemished, generation, crooked and twisted. And we'll get to those last two in a moment. But in Deuteronomy, it's, it's Israel that is crooked and twisted. They continuously complain, which we established last week as a sin, the wages of which is death. They sinned in many other ways as well, of course. But the point is that because of their sin, including their complaining, they are blemished. They are not God's children. So Paul is saying here in our text, don't be like Israel. Don't do what they did. Don't complain so that you may be children, blameless, innocent, without blemish, so that you may be holy. Because that's what Israel was supposed to be. It's repeated throughout Leviticus. God is holy. He is he's other. He is set apart. He is perfectly right and pure in all that he is and all that he does. So he says, Leviticus eleven forty four, for I am the Lord, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and you be holy, for I am holy. Says it again in verse 45. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Again, he says it in 19.2 and 20.26. And even before that, after rescuing Israel, after the complaining, before the giving of his good law, God tells Israel in Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Holiness demands holiness. God is holy. For his people to be with him, they must be holy. Israel, in large part, was not and so Moses looks ahead and warns them ahead of time, saying, you will no longer be his children because sin separates from God. Well, now Paul is picking up on that same language. And don't forget the larger context. Don't forget verse 12. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. But we clarified last week what that meant. We often oversimplify salvation and think only of justification, where God declares us righteous, right with him. But that's not the whole entirety of salvation. There is also sanctification. And what does that word mean? What does the root sanctus mean? It means holy. It's that simple. Sanctification, then, is the process by which God makes us righteous. He makes us holy. So, Peter picks up on this in about Israel in 1 Peter 15. He takes this, which we just read, these verses, and he applies it to the church. He says, you, church, you shall be holy for I am holy. Well, that's the Leviticus verse that God says to Israel. 
And then he picks up on Exodus 19.5, that same quote we read about Israel. And he again applies it to the church in 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race. That's the one we read. A holy priest, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So you see, that's what we, the church, are supposed to be. So again, take note of this. Side note, I'll keep pointing this out until we get it. We, the church, we are Israel. There is no church-Israel distinction in the New Testament. Both Paul and Peter take quotes that are about Israel and then apply them directly to the church. Because the church is the fulfillment of Israel. The church is the people of God. Now no longer just Jew, but Jew and Gentile united together as the people of God based upon the person and work of Christ. But the point right now is that people is to be Holy, set apart, different. And that's what the process of sanctification is all about. It's about making us holy. So notice what Paul is doing here. Notice the progression of his argument. Verse 12, work out, live out your salvation, your sanctification. Verse 14, do everything without complaining. Verse 15, that you may be blameless, innocent, without blemish. In other words, that you may be sanctified. We saw two sermons ago that you have work to do in the sanctification process. And that work is obedience. If you love me, you will obey me. Jesus says that over and over and over again. John 14, 15. A lot of you say that you love Jesus, but you don't obey Jesus. Jesus himself says that you don't really love Jesus then. Because love is Obedience And obedience is our response. It's our work, our response to his gracious work on our behalf. You can't claim to love him if you aren't growing in your obedience of him. He says, why do you say to me, Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? It's so simple. I don't know why we get so confused about this. Some of you are separated from Jesus and you don't know it, but you should know it because look at your life. Look at your behavior. You prove that you want nothing to do with Jesus by how you live. A.W. Tozer famously put it uh, like this in The Pursuit of God years ago. Like his plain horse sense. I don't use that phrase anymore. Plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. And it is an easily observable fact that for countless numbers of persons, the change from no faith to faith makes no actual difference in their life. Is that you? Has there been change? Are you growing in obedience? Are you growing in your love for the Lord and your, your concern for the things of God? Are you growing in holiness? As if not, you may still be in your sins and separated from God. Repent and believe in Jesus. Because God is creating for himself a people. And that people we read in 1 Peter is a holy people. And so Paul says, holy people, stop complaining. He's not saying, if you stop complaining, then you'll be holy and blameless children of God. We know he's not saying that. We don't obey to be saved. We obey because we have been saved by the grace of God. We don't stop complaining we, um, to be saved. We stop complaining because we have been saved. 
I mean, this whole section is about sanctification. Our salvation includes our sanctification. So work that out. Live it out. And do that by not complaining. Why? Because complaining hinders holiness. Complaint frustrates sanctification. That's this first point. How does it, how does it do that? How does it actually hinder sanctification and holiness? Well, remember last week. Remember sovereignty. Romans 8, 28. By the way, listen, sovereignty, sovereignty is the most comforting doctrine in the Bible, by the way. I've read a number of things in the last couple of years, something recently, that seems to imply that we shouldn't use the sovereignty of God to comfort sufferers. What? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Now, listen, if all you're saying is that when someone loses a loved one, uh, don't callously go up to him and pat him on the back and unfeelingly say, oh, God's sovereign, he'll work this for good. Uh, wait, don't do that. That's not a problem with the sovereignty of God. That's a problem with idiots, right? We don't know how to use the doctrine of God correctly. Don't be dumb. But listen, when suffering comes to me, and it has, and it will, we've lost children. My dad is still suffering greatly. I still struggle with, with mild doubt and despair at times. More suffering will come sometime. That's what we are promised. We're not promised health, wealth, and prosperity. We're promised that there will be persecution and that there will be suffering. So when that does, do you know what I desperately need? I need the sovereignty of God. That's, that's my only hope, that he's big enough and that he's good enough to do something with this thing that maybe seems to me right now hopeless and devastating. And if God is not sovereign, it may just be hopeless and devastating. But if he is sovereign, then for the Christian, there is no such thing as hopeless and devastating. There's no such thing. Romans 8.28 is true. He truly is working all things, good and bad, happy and sad, for my Good. I said this last week, but I want to emphasize it again because I think we missed this. and We've got to remind ourselves of this. In Christ, God is always good to us. No exceptions. In Christ, God is always good to us. No matter what is happening, he is being ultimately good. And he will bring ultimate good. And that's exactly what I need when I'm suffering. Now, don't, be, don't be callous about it, right? Of course, don't, don't be foolish. But remind me gently and lovingly, as a friend, weep with me, uh, sit with me, mourn with me. But don't you dare let me mourn as someone without hope. Because we have infinite and eternal hope in Christ. It is so much bigger than the worst situations in this life. Paul says it. And Paul's life was miserable from a world's perspective. And Paul says, this light and momentary suffering. If Paul can call it light and momentary, maybe we can do that too. Paul knew his Bible. Paul knew who Job was. Uh, Paul knew what he had experienced. And Paul says, that was preparing for him an eternal weight of glory. There are bitter, bigger and better things happening. And I can trust that all things will work together for my good because God is sovereign. Always remind me of that. I forget 
daily. I preach the sovereignty. I, you're probably annoyed by how much I preach the sovereignty of God. But you know why I preach it so much in part? Because I forget it so much. I will go here tonight. Children will be difficult, and I'll be exhausted and depressed because one person will say something negative about the sermon, and then I'll be devastated because I'm a sinner. And I'll forget the sovereignty of God regularly. But I need to remember, and I need you to remind me, and I need to remind you because that's our hope. So complaining, since God is always sovereign and always good, your sinful complaint about your circumstances are an assault on that goodness and that sovereignty. It's sin. And sin, again, always separates. Sin is the opposite of holiness. Therefore, complaining hinders holiness. It frustrates your sanctification. Instead of working out your salvation, complaining is working against your salvation. So stop complaining. Not so that you may become a child of God, but because in Christ you already are a child of God. Live like it. Act like it. Work it out. Do you delight in that truth? Don't miss that in verse 15. Don't just gloss over it. He calls us, says you're a child of God. And that's that's the highest privilege of the gospel. I just finished Knowing God this week. I read it again. It's fantastic. If you've never read Packer's Knowing God, just go read it. I loved it. It was so edifying to my soul. Packer points out in that book that that adoption, the fact that we get to be children of God, is, is a higher privilege even than justification. Yes, justification is the fundamental blessing of the gospel. My sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole. It's nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. That's, that's justification. Amen and amen. Wonderful blessings. But that's not the end game. It doesn't, it doesn't stop there. That's not the goal. I'm forgiven and justified so that I may be a son of God. You are forgiven and justified so that you may be sons and daughters of God most high. And does that get you excited at all? I think you're excited just a little bit. And Packer again, I love this. I've heard this a bunch, but it just struck me again this week. He says, you sum up the whole New Testament in a single phrase. That's a bold claim. It better be good. You sum up the whole New Testament in a single phrase, if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of God. In the same way, you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole life, it means that he does not yet understand Christianity very well at all. Christianity is about God being our Father. That's never going to impress you if, like with the world, you sing, what's the, there's some country songs that we're all uh, children of God. I forgot, Alan Jackson, I don't know who it is, that we're all children of God. Scripture says, nope, none of us are children of God until God's grace intervenes and rescues us and saves us and redeems us and God adopts us. You are an orphan. And not just an orphan, but an enemy. And not just an enemy, but lost. And not just lost, 
but dead. But now, if you are in Christ, you are a son or daughter, you are found, you are alive. Again, if that's true, and I forget this all the time, I am speaking to myself. If that is true, what do we have to complain about? Nothing. Nothing. He's he's saying, be who you are. Remember what you have been rescued from and rescued to and stop complaining because that complaint hinders your holiness. And maybe you're not where you want to be because you're constantly complaining about where you are. Maybe you just, because you refuse to see the goodness of God in your circumstances, and they're good. There are good things in your circumstances, no matter what is happening, in part because you're not in hell. So anything above that is grace, pure and simple. Maybe you're constantly complaining, and that's why you're not growing. Maybe your holiness has been hindered by your discontent. Repent. Be content. Be holy. And you may not believe it. We don't believe this. We've got to figure out how to teach this better. But there is nothing better than holiness. Because holiness is simply, it's us being like our father. So when I was a little kid, I wanted nothing more than to be like my father. I wanted to be him. That's good. Fathers, I want your sons to be, want to be like you. I want my daughters to look up to me and desire to grow up to be in some way uh, uh, like me. In many ways, not like me, but in some ways, like me. That's what holiness is. It's, it's God. He is so good. I, just, I want to be like him because he's good and because he's God. So stop complaining because it hinders that. It hinders your sanctification and it hinders your holiness. It refuses to see the good in your life and focuses you only on the bad. Number two, let's keep going. Back to verse 15. He doesn't just want them to be holy and sanctified. He wants them to be holy for a reason. Children of God without blemish. Look at the middle of 15. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you grew up in the church in the 80s or 90s, you know the song, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Now, this may just be me, because I was kind of dumb. The second verse, I thought it was forever. Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. I'm going to let it shine. And I remember thinking, why would you hide a light under a bush? That seems probably a candle. Seems to be a fire hazard. Seems dangerous. That doesn't make doesn't make any sense. Did anyone else think those are the lyrics? Hide it under a bush. Oh, no. That's not, that's not what it says, right? I'm, you know, I'm just, it appears that I'm the only one that thought it was that as a kid. Well, no. The line is, hide it under a bushel. No. I'm going to let it shine. That makes more sense. And that's straight out of the King James Version of Matthew chapter 5. A bushel is just a basket or a bowl. You don't hide a light under a bowl. That makes no sense. And it's much safer than a bush. And the whole point of a light is to shine. Matthew 5.15. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, that's the bushel, but on a stand and give it light and it gives light to all in the house. 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, then you are a light. 
that is supposed to shine. Why? Because Christ is the light. John 1, 4, the word was God, was with God, he made everything. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says this himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Again, in 1246, notice that there's a big theme in John. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is light. And notice in all those verses, light is intimately linked with life. We are somewhat notorious for killing houseplants um, next door to the parsonage. It's not entirely our fault. Our house is just a big brick box that doesn't get much light. And so when you combine that fact with the fact that the plants inevitably don't end up getting much water either, well, that means death, right? No light means death. Jesus is light. Jesus is life. And as light, he also then reveals. He is the truth. He shows us that which is right and true. We are blind. We are in darkness. We do not know the way. Jesus is the way. And Jesus, as life and light, gives us new life and then makes us lights. And that's our identity. Yeah, identity is important. Our culture is obsessed with identity today. And not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that it gets it entirely wrong. It, it thinks that you, your identity is whatever you want it to be. Tells you, you can shape it or create it or construct your identity however you'd like. But it's a lie. And it doesn't work. It actually only leads to misery and darkness and death. We do not get to decide who we are. God decides and declares who we are. So living then contrary to who God designed you to be leads to disaster. And that's what sin is. It is a rejection of God and his word. It is a rejection of God and his design. It is an attempt to be God by declaring that we know better and that we'll do what we want. And it never works. You need to know, if you're not a believer, you need to know who you are and who God created you to be. But Christian... You also need to know who you are. You need to know your identity in Christ. We've already seen the new fundamental identity. You are a child of God, the highest privilege of the gospel. Again, the God who created all of this, the God who sustains all things, who is consciously at one time aware of and engaged with over 7.5 billion people in the world. Have you ever gone to a New York City playground with multiple children? I cannot keep up with four of them. It's, it's terrifying. You, there's minutes where you're like, oh, I think I might have lost one. Praise God, he always brings them back. God perfectly keeps track of 7.5 billion people at all times. You know, there's no such thing as um, multiple tasking. What's that called? My brain is not working. Uh, you can't separate and divide your attention. You can focus on one thing, and you can switch your attention. One thing. Uh, multitasking. Man, thank you. Somebody whispered, and I got it. I'm tired, and I'm hot. Um, man, thank you, someone whispering. Multitasking. You, you can't do it. It's not a thing. God, 7.5 billion people. The average human head has 100,000 hairs on it. Mine's slowly becoming a little bit less. 
Andrews is zero. Uh, sorry, Andrew, it was supposed to be Derek, but he ended up in the hospital. Um, making it easier on the Lord. And that's 7.5 billion times 100,000 hairs. He says he knows every one of them. And that gets us into numbers that I, I can't grasp. You in Christ are the child of that God. But the God we can barely even begin to grasp. He loves us. He is mindful of us. He is with us. He cares for us. That's our fundamental identity. You've got to learn to dwell on that and delight in that and rest in that. And that fact should change everything. And that's not even our point. I just can't help myself. We're children of God and that should delight us. But that then means also that we are lights and lights show and shine. That's what lights are for. What you are determines what you do. Well, if you are a Christian, then you are a light, and a light is to shine. And back to 1 Peter 1.9, we've already seen our identity as Israel, uh, the people of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who we are. What are we to do then? He tells us that you are this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christian, that's why you exist. Plain and simple. It's, it's, not, it's not about you. The Bible is not about you. Your life is not about you. So many of my problems and your problems boil down to our failure to remember this fundamental fact. You may be miserable because your life is not going the way that you think that it's supposed to go. But your life is not for you. Right? Your life is not meant to be as easy, comfortable, and entertaining, and as self-fulfilling as possible. And I am so startling to learn this right now. One of my idols is comfort and ease and, and time uh, to rest and, and breaks to do what I want. And it just seems like God is just like shining a spotlight on this. Like, you're the worst. You're the worst. You're the worst. And he's right. He just is. This, this thing that remains in me, this, this self that craves me and my thing and, and, and what I want. And so when I get frustrated with my kids, it's not because of them. It's because of me. It's because of how I respond to them. Because they're interrupting me and my desires and my comfort and my ease. When, in fact, actually, I exist for them. God specifically gave me those children and said, all right, now, this is your thing. Now, this is what you do. This is why you exist. Husbands, that's why you exist. Husbands, love your wives. Okay, that's easy. We know that word. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Again, husbands die. Well, oh, the leader, the men need to lead. You do. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. But that means die. That means lay down your life and serve and seek the good of your wife and seek the good of your children. See, now my life is not my own, and I struggle when I forget that. I'm like, no, 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 it is my own. This is my time. People are encroaching on that time. Therefore, I am angry, and I'm going to complain. No, it's not about me. If we could actually believe that, it would change everything. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Here it is. You are not your own. You struggle with scripture memory? That's five words. Count slowly. You can do that one. 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own. Just 
Stick that into your brain. Remember that when the frustration comes, when you're stuck on the train, when you're stuck in traffic, when you're getting frustrated. You are not your own. Why? For you are bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. God saved you. He bought you. Therefore, you are now His. You are not your own. So glorify Him. God saved you, First Peter says, that you may proclaim His excellencies. You know, honestly... Does that ever enter into the equation when you're evaluating what to do or not to do, when you're down and depressed, when you're impatient and angry? Is it not basically because you think that you are your own? Yeah, I'm speaking from personal experience. That's, that's my problem. But you're not. Again, drill. 1 Corinthians 6.19 in your brain. You are not your own. I forget it all the time. Remember. I now fundamentally exist for another. My life now is fundamentally reordered and rewired to serve another. It's him, not me. And in one of the main ways I serve him is then by serving others. That means that now my identity is as a light and a witness, not to myself, but to him. And you are a light. The question is, a light of what? What are you revealing? But what are your words and your actions reveal to the world as your functional God? What are your words and your actions reveal to the world as, as the thing you most love and most delight in and most find joy in? Paul says, shine and reveal him. Show him. And notice how strong Paul's language is in verse 15. Look at, don't miss this. Look at how he describes the world. Look at how he describes those who are around us, crooked and twisted. The King James says crooked and perverse. The first word there is the word from which we get the term scoliosis. Scolios. It meant bent or curved or, or twisted. And the second word literally means to be turned through or to be thoroughly turned, distorted or corrupted. That's, that's our world. That's how God's inspired word describes our culture, crooked and twisted. That's America. That's New York City. That's those around us who do not know the Lord. Crooked and twisted. Not my words. Just repeating God's. And man, how frequently do we identify ourselves with and delight in that which Scripture calls crooked and twisted? How much of our time do we spend being entertained by that which Scripture calls crooked and twisted, seeking to imitate those very things? How crooked and twisted is it that we love and imitate that which is crooked and twisted? That's a huge problem. Uh, James 4.4 is either true or it's not. Uh, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility or animosity or hatred with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you are friendly with that which is crooked and twisted, you are an enemy of that which is straight and pure. This is why the love of the world is so dangerous. This is what terrifies me as a parent. This is what keeps me awake literally 
sometimes because I know my childhood and I know how much I grew up loving the world and I see the, the tendrils of that still within me. And I so desperately want to protect my children from that. Again, not legalistically, not just to shut them off and don't let them go out, kind of, but not, I know that doesn't work exactly. Um, but how, how do I as a parent emphasize that, that God is better than the world? How do I protect them from this love of the world that is so opposed to God? This is why 1 John 2.15 is so strong, though we generally completely ignore it and want nothing to do with it. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Do you hear that? That makes a little more sense in light of our passage. You are loving that which is crooked and twisted. God is straight and pure. You are loving that which is fundamentally opposed to him. Paul wants us to prove ourselves different, holy, not crooked. And that's the holiness part. God is making us like him. If you are not becoming more like him, if you are more identified with the world, then you do not know him and you are not saved. And this is what God took in college and said, you are a liar and you are not saved. Thank God that he did that, because he showed me how much more I loved the world and how much more identified with the world. And I only hung out with non-believers, and I was just like non-believers, and I didn't actually care about the things of God. And God, praise God, by his spirit, through his word, and some godly um, brothers in Christ said, hey, something might not be right here. Look at, look at 1 John. Do you love the world, or do you love the things of God? God makes us holy. He saves, he justifies, and he sanctifies, and he does all this for the purpose of making us lights, which means that we are alive, we exist, we are here on this corner of 58th and 41st, in this neighborhood, in this city, you are in your home, your school, your work, your neighborhood, not by accident, sovereignty, you're there to be a light to a desperately dark place. Guys, we must believe in hell. We have to believe in hell. I've talked about this some recently, but it's because I've been so convicted about it. We don't believe in hell. Or at least we don't live like we believe in hell. We don't really believe that every single person in this world, every single person walking down that sidewalk, every single person you sit beside on that train, every single person you work with, Everyone you interact with in every moment of your life, if they do not hear and believe in Jesus Christ, they will be damned eternally to hell. And listen, I'm culturally conditioned enough that I, even I, as the pastor, feel just a little bit awkward and uncomfortable saying that because it's so unpopular today. And I hate that I feel that. But I hate that that's still within me. How tragic because Scripture is so clear. God's wrath is revealed against all unrighteousness. No one is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. There's no way around it in Scripture. If you believe in Jesus, you have to believe in His Word. And if you believe in His Word, you have to believe that He is the only way, truth, and life. And that no one comes to the Father except through Him. That means that if they don't go through Him... They go to hell every time without fail. Guys, listen, I, I, I hate, I hate how often apathetic I am about that fact. I, 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 it's, it's very concerning. I really do hate it. 
Uh, I so often don't believe the things that I stand here and preach uh, to you. I was reading John Newton last night, and he said the same thing. I was like, okay, if Newton can say it, I can say it. What about you? Do people even know that you claim to be a Christian? Do they know? That's a bad sign if they don't, by the way. It just is. Are you shining any sort of light in the darkness that surrounds you? Or would you generally rather blend in with the darkness so that no attention is drawn to you? Brothers and sisters, that's, that's not who we are. And that's not what we are for. God saved us for a reason. He bought us and he made us his so that we could have the wonderful privilege of being part of his rescuing of others from death and darkness. Why don't we get excited about that? Right? Like, why don't we care? What in the world can we do? And how can we do it better? Well, yeah, that'll, be, that'll be our last point. Uh, we'll be there in a minute. But real quick, oh, I haven't even really gotten to our point. What in the world does this have to do with complaining? Well, we've already seen that it complain, complaining hinders holiness. Holiness means set-apartness. We become light, which is distinct and set apart from the darkness. Therefore, since complaining hinders holiness, complaining also hinders witness. Complaint frustrates evangelism. We'll see in a moment that words are central to witness, obviously. Well, your complaints are words that express dissatisfaction, words that are no different than the constant complaint of the darkness around you. When we complain, we are no different than anyone else. When we complain, we speak as functional atheists, not trusting in the goodness and sovereignty of God in all things. When we complain, those around us are making judgments about our faith and about our God. They see and they notice that we speak no differently than them. When we are most marked by complaint, they see that our hope doesn't really seem to be any different than theirs. Complaint weakens witness. Listen, we all know that we struggle to witness as we'd like to. I, I do as well. There are many reasons for that. Sin is, is the reason, first and foremost. But maybe you're so bad at witnessing because you're so good at complaining. Right? Maybe those two things are related. Maybe we're so bad at witnessing because we're so good at complaining. Paul says, stop. You have been called out by God. Christ died to set you apart. He made you different to be a light to shine in the midst of this depressingly dark world. And your complaining ruins that. Stop. Stop complaining. Trust in God's sovereignty and goodness and start witnessing to that sovereignty and goodness. How? Last point. Real quick. Told you we wouldn't get very far. The word. The word is how. The word both furthers and sanctification and evangelization. Look at verse 16. No complaining that you may be holy children of God that shine like lights. How? 16. Holding fast to the word of life. That's how by the word. Now, the Greek for holding fast there can be tricky. It can mean two things. Uh, you'll see that if you're reading the King James, it says holding forth the word of life. And that's a legitimate possible translation. It, it, I think it maybe kind of has sense of, of both of them. Uh, I lean towards the holding fast uh, interpretation. The word echo is that the root of the word means to have, to hold, or to possess. Paul uses the same word in 1 Timothy 4.16. 
where he writes, keep a close watch, it's the same word, keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. That keep a close watch, or as the King James puts it, take heed, is what I think Paul means in our verse. How can we stop complaining? How can we grow in holiness? How can we shine as lights in a dark world only by keeping a close watch on, taking heed of, and holding fast to the word? The word of what? Oh, the word. This word. It says it's the word of life. It's life. He says this thing. This is life. Do you believe that? That life is contained in these pages? If I were to give you a book, and I somehow convinced you that by the reading of that book, uh, you would have a billion dollars, you'd read the book. And yet, what I am doing every single Sunday in this pulpit is telling you that by the reading of this book, you will find something infinitely greater than a billion dollars. It will show you God. It will show you the way to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Now, yes, I know that just reading the book doesn't automatically do anything. The Spirit has to work in our hearts. He has to give us new hearts, open our eyes, grant us faith so that we may believe the word that we're reading. But the word is the means through which God does that. God works through his word. Period. We've got to be more and more clear on that. Period. That is how God speaks. It is the means. It is how he speaks and saves and gives life and comfort and peace. It is how he challenges and changes and grows and encourages. Infinite eternal riches are contained in these pages. It says life is literally contained in these pages because it is they that reveal to us the one who is light and life. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 When you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God which is at work in you. That's a wonderful verse. Go, go think on that verse. These are the words of God, and it says those words work in us. They, they, they do stuff. They are living and active. There's no such thing as dead word. God's word works. James 1.21 tells us to receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Friends, listen to me. These words are able to save your soul. And there's no other way. These are the words of life. 1 Peter 1.23, you have been born again. How? You walked the aisle, you raised your hand, you prayed some prayer? No, through the living and abiding word of God. We are born by and through the word. That's why Paul calls it the word of life. And that is why the one thing that you need is to learn to hold fast to this word, to, to, to cling to it. Life is pain. There's a lot of suffering. Life is hard. I so frustratingly fluctuate between contentment and complaint, between gladness and sorrow. That means that this word is my only hope. This speaks the truth when I am tempted with lies. This speaks life when I feel death. This speaks joy when I feel sorrow. It points me to the God who holds me fast. The God who has done everything to save and secure me. Where you lost at sea with only like a little floaty. Right? You would cling to that float as if it was life or death. You would hold fast to that which was your only hope for survival. And that's precisely what this 
is. This is your only hope of survival. Because this is the means through which God speaks and works. This is your only hope of killing complaining. It is your only hope for holiness. It is your only hope for shining like a light. Brothers and sisters, we must repent of our apathy for the word of God. I'm trying not to be super fundamentalist, legalist guy. I'm trying. I, some, I feel it sometimes. I feel the pull. I want to do it. But it is a problem uh, that we can watch hours and hours straight of Netflix and then act like it's some chore or that we don't have time to read God's word. And that's a problem. I have Netflix. I, I, like, I like it. It's fine. I'm not opposed to Netflix. Um, but it's a problem, right, that we can do that so easily and joyfully and yet like, oh, you know, don't have time. Can't. Can't read it. It would take less than 10 minutes a day to read the whole Bible in a year. 10 minutes, that's it. Almost half the books of the Bible take less than 30 minutes to read. 23 of the books of the Bible can be read in less than 20 minutes. A whole thing. 20 minutes. The average sitcom is about 23 minutes. And let's be honest, you watch six or seven or eight in a row. You cut one of them, and you can read a whole book of the Bible. I know you're busy. But you're not that busy. Like, you do have time to read the Word. I don't, I don't care who you are. And why wouldn't you? Paul says it's the Word of life. If you struggle with your tongue, your attitude, your complaint, read the Word. Read the Gospel that reminds you of what Christ did to save you. If you struggle with your sanctification, holiness, to change, read the Word through which God uh, uses His very Spirit to work and to shape and to mold and transform. If you struggle to speak the Word to those around you, read the Word and pray that God would convince you that sin separates from Him and ends in hell. Pray that God would give you a heart and a passion for the lost as you see His heart in the pages of Scripture. Brothers and sisters, whatever you do, however you do it, read the Word. Paul says, hold fast. And listen, if you're holding fast, you will then hold forth. As you hold fast and as you ingest, you will then speak and you will hold forth that very Word. Because it's the Word that reveals to us the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ who came to take all of that sin all of that complaining, all that lack of holiness, all that fear to speak the word. He took all of that on himself and he died for it for us in our place. This is the word of life because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the good news of what he has done to save us from our unimaginable amount of sin. I know I deserve death. I am a miserable sinner, which makes me so thankful for the grace of God, that he is merciful and patient, so thankful that he always ends that which he begins. He is my only hope, and it is in these pages that I find him. And so I want to cling to it, and by doing that, cling to him. I want to read, I want to meditate, I want to delight, and I want to see the entirety of my life through the lens of Scripture. And that is what I want for every single one of you. I want you to know him and the power of his resurrection. I want you to turn from your sin and to turn from him. I want you to hear, know, and love him. And all of that happens. All of this is only possible through this wonderful word of life. Claim to it, Paul says. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the God who speaks. We thank you that you have spoken so clearly to us through your word. Forgive us for how little we care about your word. Forgive us for how little we read your word. Father, maybe we actually should believe that that's a sin. Forgive us uh, from that sin. Lead us to own and confess that sin. Lead us to trust that you are faithful and just to forgive us from that sin. And then move and motivate us to meet you in your word. And as we read of you, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us, that we would know, and that we would love, and that we would live in response to what it is we learn about you, especially about your son, Jesus Christ, and his gospel, and his grace, and his mercy to save us from our sins. Father, we are often complaining, unholy, unspeaking, ungrateful sinners. Help us. Make us the opposite of all of those things. Lord, make us like Christ. Father, nothing will have been accomplished this morning if you do not work now through your word on our hearts. So we ask now for you to do that for us, for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.